evening to you once again. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and this is where we find ourselves. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, you just get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hand this evening. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. I want to remind you as we're kind of getting settled here a little bit, water baptism tomorrow night. A lot of people aren't able to attend on the Sunday morning, but they do in the evening. 6.30 tomorrow evening right out here in our courtyard. If you've never been water baptized, that's a commandment. And uh, there's reasons for being water baptized, and they're all good reasons. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And uh, But if you've never been water baptized, here's an opportunity Weather's going to be warm and pleasant, and we'll have a great night of fellowship. Great to come out as a church family, too, and to just celebrate all of this and to really affirm people in taking this step of faith that they're taking, obeying the Lord. And so uh, and we'll have some refreshments and, and enjoy all of that, too. So that's tomorrow night, beginning at 6.30. Everyone's invited. And then, men, I want to make you aware once again, for those of you who weren't here this morning, that the... Uh, this Saturday is the annual Northern California Calvary Chapel Men's Conference. It'll be held right in this room from 9 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. And so be aware of that. It's always a fabulous day. God makes it so, and you won't want to miss it, and you won't want to miss the opportunity to invite someone to come as well. Well, in this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is uh, on the search for uh, life and uh, the meaning of life and fulfillment and purpose in life and satisfaction under the sun, S-U-N, in the context of creation. He's decided, I'm going to find out if a person can find meaning and purpose in life and fulfillment in life independent of God. And so he begins the search. He began last week. As we saw that, he was blessed with absolutely unlimited resources in terms of wealth, finances, power, virtually unlimited. Uh, The amount of time that he could invest, he didn't have like a nine to five, you know. The amount of time that he could invest, God had blessed him with great leaders. The whole machine of the nation moved very, very comfortably without his active involvement over it, you know, for eight hours a day or ten hours a day, so he could give himself to all of these different kinds of things. And God gave him uh, the opportunity to do all of this, not just so that he could discover for himself if you can find meaning and purpose in life independent of God, but gave him all of these blessings so that he could endeavor to do that on behalf of all of us so that none of us would live under the self-deception that, boy, if only I had this uh, educational degree, if I had this amount of money, if I had this amount of training, or I had uh, this amount of time or opportunity, then I could find meaning in life independent of God. No, he tries on behalf of all of us, and his conclusion was that life under the sun take God out of the human existence and all of life, even at its best, is empty and frustrating. And uh, so he began his search last week, as we saw, and 
talking about the fact that man is comparatively insignificant and really that our lives are pointless apart from God in the grand scheme of um, the massiveness of creation. We come, we go, we're forgotten, and what does it matter? And then he, uh, late in chapter 1, he then gave himself to the accumulation of human wisdom and education and knowledge. And he discovered that if I'm not able to process that knowledge with God, if I'm not able to add God's knowledge to it, then all that knowledge does of the human condition is create more grief and more sorrow. Because what do you do with it? The world has fallen. And uh, so all you're doing is being informed of how terrible everything is, but you don't have a greater revelation by which to process that, and you don't have a rock that's higher than you to take all of those problems to. Well, he continues the search here, and beginning in uh, uh, chapter 2 here, and in an endeavor to find, you know, make pleasure and make parting the master passion or the master focus of his life. So he's like a little bit of a frat boy at this point. So he's gone to college at the end of chapter one. He's given himself to wisdom. He's given himself to knowledge. He has found that that is empty and that that is uh, frustrating without God. And so uh, if it can't be found then in man's wisdom, then perhaps then the meaning is found in the other end of the spectrum by pursuing pleasure, by pursuing parting. Let's not take life too seriously. And so he checks out. And so basically what you have at the beginning of chapter 2 is a spring break. He just gets out of college and says, all right, that's, that's its own thing there. That's empty and frustrating. And there's nothing new under the sun. He says, I'm just going to become a party animal now and try and discover uh, the meaning of life there. And I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with mirth. Uh, therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely, he said, this was his conclusion, this is vanity. And he de- declared all of it to be vanity. Uh, the reasons, he said, I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? And I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to hold on, uh, lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. And so he gives himself to all of this parting. His conclusion is this is just as much a dead end as anything else is. Again, his reasons, he said, of laughter, it's madness. After a while, you want to live the party life? Hey, for any thinking person, and the more of a thinking person you are, the quicker you come to the conclusion, you look at it and you say, this is crazy. This is a crazy way to live. This is why, you know, you don't have like raves for 60-year-olds or 40-year-olds. I mean, they figured it out. This is no way to live. There's nothing to be found here. So he said, after a while, you can, you, part, you can only party so much, and then you come to the conclusion you got any of your mind left that this is just a crazy way to live. And he said of mirth in verse 2 there, what does it accomplish? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? So he's in the middle of the whole party scene and all the pleasure and seeking all of this. And then one day he just wakes up and, and he says, this is no way to live. He says, what does it accomplish? 
Well, where does that come from? Where does that come from in a human's life? What's it, what does this accomplish? And ultimately, that kind of life becomes very boring and it becomes very, very unsatisfying for the simple reason that we have been created as human beings to be creative. You can't be like God and not be creative. And so man has been created to work and to accomplish things that are constructive in life and then to enjoy a feeling that is more deep and more meaningful than anyone, anyone will ever feel at a party. And that is the sense of accomplishment, of having been a part of creating something good and doing something good. And that's one of the greatest experiences a person will ever, ever feel in life. You know, when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall in the, the Garden, they were created to work. They were created to be creative in that Garden of Eden. And when God Adam and, created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them, and then a couple of big, gigantic reclining chairs for them, and then command the angels to attend to their every whim. The Lord, took, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And so people have to be uh, people who have a constructive, meaningful goal in their life that requires discipline and it requires hard work. That kind of a person is far more... Uh, well-adjusted than the person who just wants to party their life away for the simple reason that even if they don't know the Lord yet, they are engaged in what they've been created to be engaged in, and that is to be productive. Now, as it relates to Christians, I mean, today the world that we live in is pleasure-mad. If you ever see the statistics, I always forget statistics as quickly as I read them, but at the end of the year, usually they'll give you statistics on everything and they talk about the amount of money that is spent on pleasure in the United States of America. Astonishing sum of money. Everybody's talking about how little money there is and all the problems and all. And there's a lot of problems in the economy and all of these different kinds of things. But people are spending, continue to spend a small fortune on uh, seeking out for pleasure. So the world that we live in is just absolutely pleasure mad. And there isn't anything wrong with having fun or taking a vacation and all and these kind of things. But uh, the pleasure should not be the focus of our lives. The place where true meaning and satisfaction is found is in fulfilling the work that God has called us to do. For Adam and Eve, that was to tend the Garden of Eden. For us as Christians, that is something entirely different. He has a call on our lives individually that he wants us to, uh, to uh, fulfill. And so doing all that we do as unto the Lord, it gives a dignity and a nobility to uh, all that we do. It doesn't matter how mundane our job is or how our do- jobs may, uh, days may be spent, but because we're being creative, we're being productive, we've been created to be that, 
and it protects us from this sense of that all of life is empty and all of it is frustrating. So after a while, partying, he said, and living for pleasure, it becomes as boring as anything uh, else. But living for the Lord and serving the Lord and fulfilling his calling upon uh, our lives, that never, ever gets boring. And it is a freedom, and, and only God can bring that freedom from uh, the, the emptiness and the frustration that we would otherwise uh, f- uh, feel. And that's why Asaph, when he wrote uh, in the psalm, and he said, I'd rather spend one day as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. In other words, a thousand days, three and a half years out there doing all of that but not knowing God. So I trade three and a half years in to be able to be an usher in a church for one day. That's the gap in terms of meaningfulness that living for pleasure, living for parting, the absence of it there in terms of meaning and purpose. And then what we have, just one day of service is worth all of that. How much longer the privilege, greater the privilege that we have as Christians to live our whole life in serving the Lord. And then Solomon, he goes on in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and he continues his search by trying to find meaning and fulfillment in life through the amassing of wealth and uh, possessions. And he says, I made my works great. I built myself houses, plural. Planted myself vineyards, plural. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of her herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. On top of that, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. Anything he wanted, he bought. That's that's tough when a guy can do that. I mean, it's like, what what gift do you get for the man who has everything or the woman who has everything? It's tough to have him on your Christmas list. No, there wasn't a Christmas list yet. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, and I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. I remember one time watching a show. Perfect waste of time. There's a show showing Michael Jackson going around shopping in Las Vegas for antiques and stuff. It was just a picture of this. He walked in and out of these shops, these statues and urns and lamps and art, and he just bought them on a whim, just here, this and this and this. And, you know, of course, I've read through the years that Elton John does the same thing, just goes in and this un believable amounts of money, anything they want, that they then uh, didn't deny themselves of it. And he said, for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my 
reward from all of my labor. So he built the houses and he built planted vineyards. He made the gardens and the orchards and built the ponds to water them and acquired the servants and the gold and the silver, the musical instruments, anything he wanted, he bought. So he's got possessions like to the nth degree, the guy that, the man who has everything. Now, you and I don't have that kind of wealth. Well, if you do, talk to me after. But most of us don't have that kind of wealth. And so he has this unbelievable amount of money. But again, it's the whole idea is he's living this out for us. So none of us will ever come under the idea, oh, if only I had more things, then that would satisfy me and fill this empty place in my life. It's a funny thing about how material possessions, how they expose themselves for being insufficient to meet that need in our lives. I mean, whether it's a flat screen TV or a computer or I don't know that I've ever known anyone who had a car that was into cars or a boat that was into boats or even bicycles or whatever. There's always like one more little gadget that, you know, we could just drop this into the engine and we could just do, and no matter what you get, you think, all right, honey, if you just let me buy this, I'll be satisfied, you know. And they get it and now, you know, now it's such a nice car, you need a trailer to drive it around and get it from one place to the other. And so... Uh, he did this, all this exploring uh, for us. And after having gained all of this, he tells us in verse 11 his conclusion. He said, Then I looked on all of the works that all my hands had done and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed it all was vanity and grasping for the wind, emptiness and frustration. There is no profit under the sun. And so he came to the conclusion it's all meaningless. The meaning and the purpose of life is not found in the accumulation of more things. Now, you think about that, and if every Christian took that seriously, think about um, the amount of money that is spent on things that are beyond our needs. And how much time people, all money is time. Time is money. It's life. It represents, life is very finite. And, And so if we looked and we said to ourselves, listen, fulfillment and meaning is not going to be found in a bigger this or a bigger that or a this or that of a material thing. And instead of investing the time in what's required to then purchase that, we took that time and invested it in what will outlive the heavens and the earth, and that is the kingdom of God. How many zillions of hours would be freed up and redirected from commercial Babylon and redirected toward something that is going to last, and that is service in the kingdom of God. And, of course, why did he feel this? Why didn't physical things bring satisfaction to him as we began last week and spoke about it? The fact that a spiritual thirst and a spiritual hunger can never be satisfied by a physical thing. Again, just as Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus also said that 
uh, spoke to those that had come to him, and he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, he shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That hunger and that thirst that we have is a hunger and a thirst for God, and things can never satisfy that. And Jesus declared elsewhere, he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not collapse, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's the collapse. That's anti-American. You can hear the whole economy collapse if that was taken seriously. You read the statistics and the things, talking the articles this last week, everybody's getting upset in terms of the economy with the baby boomers getting older because they already own everything that they need to have. You know, I mean, how many shirts can you wear at once and all? So they're not like pouring money into the economy. So I don't know what they come up with next. I mean, they're going to give us injections or something to get rid of us or to move the economy on. Listen, I don't think we're that far away from it. I mean, the money is the, is the god of the age. But here's this whole, you know, idea that uh, people live under that's, you know, more and more and more. But... Uh, life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. That is proven in every single life that has ever lived, is alive today, will ever live. And because we can't truly and fully enjoy anything as God intends us to enjoy it unless we share that blessing with him. That's the way that it is. So you can have everything in the world, materially speaking, but I'm cut off from a relationship with God then I have no capacity to even enjoy those blessings in the way that I otherwise would. What we, the joy and the pleasure and the blessing that we get out of material things, recognizing that they're from God, and then thanking Him for those things, and then enjoying those things with Him, a person can get a matchbox car and, and know that that's from God, and they will enjoy that more than the person who has the real thing and doesn't know God. That's the way that it is. We are meant to, we cannot enjoy material things apart from the enjoying them with God because that's who we've been created to enjoy the blessings with and the, to recognize that all of these blessings in our life, they're a gift from God, and then to enjoy it as such. Well, you know, sometimes the self-made man, the self-made woman, they'll protest a, a statement like that and say, well, you know, listen, God had nothing to do with all that I've accumulated. Uh, he didn't have anything to do with it. I did that. Don't give God any credit for it. Maybe you've heard people say that, sometimes in a family or whatever. They really say it. I've heard them say it. And uh, so the protest, no, 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 there are no self-made people and uh, self-made men or self-made women. We owe everything to God. You remember when there was a man by the name of Belteshazzar, he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon. And he gets into this big party, orgy, debauchery thing that he's going on for days with all of his leaders and all the junkiness just before the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And he takes, and as if they, 
you know, wickedness is always, it's always got to top itself. So it always overplays its hand. The devil always overplays his hand until ultimately there's a pushback against him. And, and so he decides, listen, go into the treasury and bring out all of the goblets and all of the plates and all of the holy things that were associated with the Jewish temple in Jerusalem when my grandfather conquered it. And so they brought all of these holy items that were to be dedicated completely unto God. They bring them in and they make this all a part of this riotous debauchery. And then all of a sudden... There's a finger that writes on the wall and the plaster of the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, euphorosin. And he doesn't understand what it means. None of his wise men can tell him what it means. Somebody says, you know, there's a guy named Daniel that you've forgotten all about, but he used to say some good things to your grandfather, and he was never wrong. And so they sent for Daniel, and he said, listen, if you can tell me what these words mean up here, then I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. Daniel says... You can keep all of it. I don't want any of it. And then he began to speak of God to Belteshazzar as the God who holds your breath in his hand who, and who owns all your ways you have not glorified. We owe every breath to God, whether we acknowledge it or we don't uh, acknowledge it. And so here is this emptiness of the self-made person, all of his stuff. Sooner or later, he's left in life with him, his stuff, all of his great accomplishments. But who does he share all of those accomplishments with? Not with other people. They don't care. They're busy building their own kingdom. So they're not going to sit down and enjoy it and and help you to enjoy it in a way that God would uh, allow you to do that. And so uh, we were meant to share it with God. And I'll tell you, no atheist or agnostic can enjoy a palace or the greatest meal that a person could ever be served in a way that a Christian enjoys just a simple home and a simple meal but knows that that has been given to them by God and that their blessings have all come from God. And that's priceless. That's a priceless feeling. That's a feeling that the atheist or the agnostic never, ever feels. And so good things are always made better when we share them uh, with the Lord and we enjoy them with Him. And I'll tell you what a quality thankfulness to God adds to life. And again, the agnostic or the atheist never, ever experiences it. I like the quote by one man. He said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he's really thankful and he has no one to thank. And that's true. When we are able to recognize our blessings from God and thank Him for it, that's what makes us rich. I was watching on the um, television a number of weeks ago on PBS, you know, um, they had this show on happiness. Maybe some of you saw that. That kind of stuff always fascinates me because, again, it's an Ecclesiastes kind of thing, but in other ways too. And so this guy's writing is a study of happiness and, and how many people are happy, what makes people happy in the United States of America. And I wasn't able to confirm all of the statistics on it or anything. I just watched the show. But he, he talked about... Uh, the fact in terms of money, in terms of possessions. He talked about the fact that in terms of happiness in a person's life, um, from like zero income 
to $50,000 of income, that there's a remarkable jump in terms of happiness. In our culture, something like $50,000 is like a little bit of a mark for where you have food, you have clothing, and you have a roof over your head. So once those needs are met in a person's life, which God promises to meet in our lives, once those needs are met in our life, a person settles into a certain level of happiness in life. And they said that in their studies they could find no discernible a difference between the happiness of a person that was at $50,000 than all the way up to being multi-hundred million dollar people. And the point that they were making related to this out of the study is that once our basic needs are met, then, um, then the happiness is not found in accumulating more things. It has to be found someplace else. And then the show began to talk about the importance of family, the importance of relationship, the importance of friendship, uh, that, that riches and wealth begin to... Uh, more And more money doesn't make a person feel happier. But if they don't learn to diversify out of their wealth into these other things that are more important than wealth in terms of happiness, then, then they'll never know more happiness than the person who's making $50,000 a year. So I thought it was uh, in, interesting. Well, we better get back to Solomon here in verse 12. So in verse 12, Solomon, he's living under the sun, and he discovers here then that uh, it provides no answer to the problem of death and the inevitability of death. And Solomon has a big problem with death. He's trying to discover the meaning and purpose of life apart from God, and he cannot shake this thing called death, that there is this thing called death at the end of his life or at the end of his road. So you've got to give him credit. He's thinking because a thinking person has to think about death and what is the solution to death in life. And so he can't shake it. Why does this concern about death, um, beginning in verse 12 here, why does it follow closely upon the accumulation of wealth? And one of the reasons that it does occur as very often is, as someone has said, the fear of death increases in exact proportion to the increase in wealth. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I, I, it I do know that, you know, with Solomon here and, and what he's trying to do here, and he's got this wealth and all, he accumulates all of this wealth, and after he does, he turns to the subject of death because his wealth gets him thinking about what's going to happen to all of his wealth uh, after he's dead and after he's gone. And so he writes, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, For what can the uh, man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. And then I saw that wisdom excels folly. It's better to be wise than to be foolish. As light excels darkness, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. And so I said in my heart, As it happens to the fool, so it happens to me. And why was I then 
more wise. Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days that come. And how does a wise man die? Just the way that a fool dies. And therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And so he recognized the same event happens to everyone no matter how much money that they have and, and, and no matter how much human wisdom they have, no matter how much life experience that they have, that Nothing like that can deliver them ultimately from this event called death. And so he can't enjoy life. He's got all of these things. He's got all of these accumulated wealth. And he can't enjoy it as fully as he wants to when there's this cold, hard fact uh, awaiting him at the end of his life called death. And the fact of the matter is, and the Bible teaches, is is that no one can really enjoy life fully and enjoy their blessings fully until they have an answer to death and a solution to death. Because there's always going to be this realization that, yes, I've got this right now, but death is coming. It's out there. It's waiting for me. It is inescapable. Now, Ernest Hemingway, for those of you familiar with Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway is the poster boy for Ecclesiastes. He should be put on the cover of, of the book, the commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes. And he wrote of this in this way. He said, every man's life ends the same way. It is only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguish one man from another. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it a little bit better, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, and talks about Jesus who releases those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I don't know how you came to know the Lord and what brought you to the Lord, but before I started walking with the Lord as, as a younger person, um, this death thing was a big deal to me. Uh, I, it wasn't like I talked about it every conversation. Oh, no, here he comes. He's going to be talking about death. He's 22 years old. What in the world is wrong with him? But there was that realization that death is real in the human condition. And for me, for me to understand life and to process life, and I think Solomon's going through much the same thing here, is I needed the macro to be taken care of in order to enjoy the micro. In other words, if questions like, how did we get here? Why are we here? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? Why do we die? What happens when we die? What happens after we die? Until those questions are answered in life, then a person, at least a person like me, and I was a thinking person, then I couldn't fully enjoy the daily of life because this thing is looming. It's coming. So I needed the big questions to be answered for me to enjoy uh, the daily uh, of life. And Solomon's experiencing a little bit of this. This is what he's trying to work his way uh, through. And so Jesus, of course, is the answer to uh, death, and he's the only answer uh, for death. And so is there a solution to this very major problem called death? And Jesus said, yes, he is. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said uh, to Martha. For God so loved the world, the Bible says. Jesus said that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have, present tense, have everlasting life. We don't get everlasting life the moment we die. We have everlasting life now. And so it is only the Christian who is then looking at life above the sun, looking at God, and that, that we have a solution to death, an answer for death that allows us to then say, okay, that's covered, that's taken care of, now I can enjoy the blessings of life and give myself to pursuing what it is that God has uh, called me uh, to do. And I think that the French humanist Voltaire, he declared concerning all of this, he said, I hate life, but I'm afraid to die. That's a fairly miserable place to be. I hate life, but I'm afraid to die. Uh, That's quite an advertisement for humanism, isn't it? And that's a little bit of where, you know, Solomon finds himself. He's not as, you know, in as dire a condition as Voltaire was. Solomon, in his whole search, he is a church kid. So he, his, his, his margins are safer. So he's doing this whole experiment, but he knows there's a safety net outside of his experiment. He's been raised in the things of the Lord. He's been raised in church. Uh, Voltaire, he gave himself fully to, you know, darkness and, and all. And so that was his conclusion. Solomon is moving toward that kind of a conclusion. But the Christian is able to say the exact opposite of all of that. I love life and I'm very well prepared for death. And that then allows us to enjoy life the way that we should. He then goes on and he's troubled about, as anybody is that accumulates any kind of wealth, he gets, uh, his thoughts go then to, who's he going to leave all this money to? And so that's kind of, um, that's one thing about not having much money. You don't have to worry about that. But people with a lot of wealth, they think about that. And they think about it a lot. And so he said, then I hated all my labor, verse 18, in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. He said, I've got all this money like crazy. I've got money and vineyards. You read it all, the ponds and the irrigation, you know, place to water all of it. And, and who am I going to it, leave it to? Is the son that it's going to be left to? Is he going to be wise or a fool? Well, it's a good thing he died before he found out because he left all of that wealth to a son by the name of Rehoboam who in his first speech to Israel managed to divide the country in half. And he lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel from uh, from Israel and they established the northern kingdom of Israel leaving just two tribes uh, in in the south uh, for, uh, to make up uh, Judah. So you never know what's going to happen to all of that wealth after you're gone. And so is, is he going to be a wise or is he going to be a fool? Yet he will rule over my, all my labor in which I toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. I was smart. I did diligent. I worked hard. I got all of this stuff. It's the product of all of this. And then and who's it going to be left to? As you thought about it, he said, this also 
is vanity. And therefore I turned my heart and I despaired of all of the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all of his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. He said, this also is vanity. And so he knows that death is going to separate him from his wealth one day. That's true of everybody. As Job said, naked I came into the world and naked I'm going out. And that's just the way that it is. There's an old story about the two guys that were attending one of their friends, two older guys attending uh, the funeral of one of their friends. And one of them whispered to the other and said, how much did he leave? The other friend said, all of it. And that's the fact of the matter. All of it gets uh, left behind. And so his concern, again, is it going to be a fool? And will he take all of this that I give to him and squander it in a matter of months and a matter of years, what took so much work and wisdom and strength in order to, uh, to get it? And, and as he thought about that, that kept him from enjoying his wealth. And sometimes, you know, you, and sometimes when you're, uh, when we're not in that kind of a place in life, we don't realize the frustrations that people go through who can spend half of their life amassing this great wealth and then they spend the other half of their life worrying about what's going to happen to it after they die and they never get to enjoy it in life. But that's life under the sun and that's what Solomon was experiencing. If he lived under the S-O-N, under the Lord, then he would have known what to do with his wealth and what he would have known to do with his wealth is to send it ahead to send it forward into heaven. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where uh, on earth, rather, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do we send money ahead? By spending money and giving money to the work of the Lord. That's the eternal work that is happening in the world by supporting the local church that we attend, by supporting missionaries, by supporting parachurch organizations like Modesto Pregnancy Center or the Gospel Mission or being led of the Spirit personally for uh, money being given to individuals and that kind of thing. As it's done in the Lord's name, that money is then sent ahead into heaven and there is a reward related to it so that none of us need die and have nothing up there waiting for us and all of it is left behind. The cure to leaving behind great wealth, enough wealth that a, makes a person lose sleep over whether it's going to be wasted or thrown away, is to then use it now while you still have life, invest it now while you still have control over it in the things uh, of the Lord. And Jesus said, where, you, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's one of the great blessings of, of giving to the, to the Lord and the things of the Lord. God never asks for money because he's broke. He says, you know, what is it, wimpy with Popeye, you know? 
You know, give me a hamburger and I'll pay you on Tuesday. So God's never in that kind of a condition. Uh, Always our giving does something important in our lives as Christians. I'm not setting you up for an offering. It's just the way that it is. It always does something very, very good uh, within, uh, within our lives. And one of the things that is a key to being heavenly-minded is to being heavily invested in heaven, not just in terms of service and in terms of time, but in terms of resources as well. Wherever our money is, that our focus is on that. If you've got a lot of money in the stock market, you check the stock market out every day. If you've got a lot of money in oil or commodities, you check the prices of those commodities every day. And the same thing is true related to uh, spending money uh, for uh, the kingdom. And then he continues here in, um, in, uh, in verse 24, and he says, here's his conclusion related to all of this. He said, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy uh, good from in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of the Lord. For who can, uh, who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so it's fascinating here that as he uh, talks about, you know, all of this, he can't get away from God. So he's trying to live under the sun. It's interesting how much, um, in terms of an atheist or an agnostic, how much of their identity is dependent upon God, dependent upon the one that they deny exists. And Solomon's having the same problem. He can't, he's, He's trying not to get God into the mix as much as he can and all, but there's just places he can't go without uh, drawing God into it. And so he comes to kind of a conclusion here related to all of this and, and says, listen, the conclusion is, is that God gives these things to us, and so we might as well, again, under the sun, just enjoy them, eat them, you know, eat all of, uh, eat as much as we can, and drink as much as we can, and all of this kind of stuff, and and uh, spend it, you know, before we go uh, into eternity. So this is kind of like you see uh, people with a bumper sticker on their travel home or whatever, spending my children's inheritance. It's right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. So he's just saying, well, listen, I, I don't know who I'm going to leave it to, so I'm just going to spend it on myself and have some fun with it, uh, you know, before I do die. And that's the best that he could come up for the use of his, his money. Now, in chapter 3, um, we'll stop before we get into that chapter, and we'll pick that up as Solomon sinks into his next kind of dismal step in the search for the meaning and the purpose of life apart uh, from God as he sinks into fatalism. And, uh, and he's just having no fun at all here. And uh, perhaps you say, yes, and neither am I. Uh, related to all of this, this search and all, how depressing. So time for some communion, isn't it? Time for the Lord's Supper. And so if the worship team had come forward and the, the men, I'll invite you up in just a moment. We'll enjoy the Lord's Supper tonight. We think about 